In this podcast, I discuss graphic portrayals of violence and sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast also contains spoilers. What do you think of when you think of Jack the Ripper? He was like, I I feel like he was a murderer or something. Like, I feel like I remember him killing people or in what I've heard. I'm actually not sure. Um, probably um, mystery, violence, murder. I mean, I think, I think of like, you know, the quintessential image of like a Victorian guy in some sort of fancy hat, you know? and like obviously like gory stuff. Hello, my name is Gracie Bain and welcome to Ripperture, Building the Myth, a podcast where I explore the intersections between gender, genre, and literature about Jack the Ripper, also called Ripperture. Join me on a journey through just a few of the texts that adapt crimes that quote, startled the civilized world and puzzled police, philosophers, reporters, physicians, students of human nature, and analysts, end quote. We'll try to answer the questions. Why do we keep fictionalizing these gruesome crimes? Why are we still obsessed with these crimes? And what does that obsession tell us about ourselves? Ripperture is a result of history becoming myth through the adaptation process. Because Ripperture is based on a historical crime and myth, it invites the reader to deduce clues based on prior knowledge and popular culture. Throughout this podcast, I contend that the myth of Jack the Ripper, as it has been constructed across forums and media for over a century, has created spaces for the simultaneous process of reinforcing and crossing gender and genre boundaries. As I start every episode, I name the five canonical victims of the Whitechapel murder. Mary Ann Nichols, born in 1845, Annie Chapman, born in 1841, Elizabeth Stride, born in 1843, Catherine Eddowes, born in 1842, and Mary Jane Kelly, who was born sometime around 1863. Though there were similar crimes and murders that are sometimes associated with the Whitechapel serial killer, like the murders Martha Tabram and Emma Elizabeth Smith, the mythology of Jack the Ripper mostly includes just these five victims. I believe foregrounding the women at the start and throughout my episodes is a critical part of my work as a scholar of gender and really just as a human being. For more information on Nichols, Chapman, Stride, Eddowes, Kelly, and other information about the Whitechapel murders, check out the show notes and my website resources. As a note, throughout the episodes, you'll hear this dinging noise whenever I'm signaling a quote from an academic scholar. I know, I know, but you get used to it. Take a second and ask yourself, what do I know about Jack the Ripper? You may know the story behind the moniker, or you don't know the exact story, but you've heard the name. Maybe you've seen a movie with Jack the Ripper as a character. Or you've listened to a true crime podcast with an episode or two devoted to the Whitechapel murders that took place during the late 19th century. I would be willing to bet, though, that you've at least heard of the name. I'd be willing to make another bet that if you know anything about the killer, what you know has been shaped by the fictionalizations of that story you've consumed. When I type Jack the Ripper into the popular website Goodreads, 
the site shows 1,293 titles, including both fiction and nonfiction. The results exclude films, television shows, podcasts, video games, and other adaptations. Unfortunately, IMDb doesn't yet have the ability to search by character name, but the keyword Jack the Ripper shows 107 titles, including film, television, and documentaries. Wikipedia lists almost 30 novels, quote, influenced by the Ripper. The website also includes several musicals and plays, including the rock opera, Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, from 1996. The following sections on the Wikipedia page are devoted to film, television, art, manga, music, video games, and a sports section? I can easily add additional text to most of those categories that the site misses. While Jack the Ripper is not an object in the sense that the highlighter I'm looking at right now on my desk is an object, the story is a cultural text made up of objects like the Dear Boss Letter, the Bonnet Annie Chapman Moore, and the DVD of From Hell. And while Jack the Ripper comprises tangible objects, it is also made from ephemera and feelings. When we read about the organs removed from the women, we feel repulsion. We feel anxiety and fear when we listen to the foreboding music that inevitably comes with the film featuring Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper, or the myth of Jack the Ripper, is a culture text. In the introduction to the second edition of their book, Gender and Popular Culture, Katie Milestone and Annika Meyer define cultural texts. They write, quote, The word text has a wider meaning in the discipline of cultural studies than it has in everyday life. It refers not only to written or spoken words, but to any aspect of culture whose predominant purpose is to signify, that is, to produce meanings. In contemporary culture, most meanings are produced through languages and images, which are our most pervasive communicative systems. In this book, we use the term cultural text in its wider academic sense to include culture, which signifies through language, images, and lived practices, end quote. As a cultural text, Jack the Ripper is a combination of language, what we call him slash the words we use to describe the crimes. Images like the black silhouette holding a knife that shows up on Google. And practices like the London Jack the Ripper walking tour you can still go on, or the annual Jack the Ripper conference. In this podcast, I contend that Jack the Ripper makes at least two moves as a cultural text. First, Ripperture bends, or at least attempts to, Establish gender and genre boundaries. As a genre, Ripperture complicates the boundaries between history and myth. As a subgenre devoted to the graphic killing of women, there are moments when contemporary authors try to complicate traditional gender ideology. However, as you'll see, what may seem subversive in these texts is actually a recitation of normative ideology that sexualizes feminine rage and limits women to certain kinds of power. Additionally, the genre shows us that women's bodies are continuously policed by patriarchal forces while simultaneously fetishized as corpses. In A City of Dreadful Delight, 
Judith Walkowitz, a feminist critic that I will be using frequently in this podcast, argues, quote, the Whitechapel murders have continued to provide a common vocabulary of male violence against women, end quote. Jack the Ripper, a fictitious moniker for an unknown killer, has been credited as the first modern serial killer, and as such, has lasting impacts on true crime, including the ways gender, labor, and violence intersect. In turn, the text that is Jack the Ripper has continually impacted how our culture functions, including how we talk about violence. Which begs the question, why do we keep fictionalizing these crimes? For the rest of this episode, I'll spend some time giving you context to the historical crimes from which Ripperture is adapted. Then, we'll define terms and concepts that I'll use throughout this series, like neo-Victorian, adaptation, and gender. Finally, I'll walk us through a brief preview of what we'll discuss in some of the next episodes. The traditional narratives of the Whitechapel murders is that the five women were attacked specifically because they were sex workers. But I want to take some time to unpack this. Recently, author Hallie Ribbenhold published a book called The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper. In the book, Ribbenhold makes a major claim against the traditional narrative that all of the murdered women were sex workers. Rubenhold argues that there's a lack of evidence to confirm that three of the five women were actually sex workers. Instead, she writes that the murderer chose their victims because they slept outside or were sleeping rough. This has become a highly controversial claim. Many articles, and I do mean many, are written venerating the book and criticizing it for ignoring or denying certain facts. The debate has become what Paul Bleakley calls the, quote, history wars between Rubenhold and Ripperology, end quote. Ripperology is the study of Jack the Ripper. Rubenhold's claims that not all of the five women can be proven to be sex workers counteracts the dominant Ripper myth that the women were specifically targeted because of their work in the sex trade. Lumping all of the women into the sex work category takes agency away from them, according to Rubenhold. She writes, quote, The fibers that have clung to and defined the shape of Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Kate, and Mary Jane's stories are values of the Victorian world. They are male, authoritarian, and middle class. They were formed at a time when women had no voice and few rights and the poor were considered lazy and degenerate. To have both of these things was one of the worst possible combination. For over 130 years, we have embraced the dusty parcel we were handed. We had rarely ventured to peer inside it or attempted to remove the thick wrapping that has kept us from knowing these women or these true stories, end quote. For Rubenhold, her work on the biography of the five canonical Ripper victims is an attempt to give them their voices back and return their agency. For much of the Ripperologist community, the book has historical inaccuracies that make her conclusions suspect. I'll be honest, I was kind of dreading writing this episode. 
I have spoken at the annual Drag the Ripper conference, and I found the Ripperologist community to be enthusiastic and helpful to me. I have also read Ribbonhole's book several times and feel like I better understand Nichols, Chapman, Stride, Eddowes, and Kelly. I am not a historian, and as much as I've researched the murders, I still don't know some of the historical facts, like which coroner examined each victim. I was worried that I would get a fact wrong or say something controversial about the history. To be fair, no one has actually said anything to make me feel like that. But I think I'm so aware of this because Jack the Ripper has become a topic that, for many people, represents many things. And his victims, too. What is important is that these women have been fictionalized as sex workers. Which tells us something about how we think of them. And if we don't consider how gender influences the nuances of the myth, we are missing a piece. As Bleakley also writes, Quote, in the rush to use the Ripper story as a cipher for theoretical narratives, however, the basic facts of the case, that the Ripper was a killer of vulnerable women, is often forgotten, seen as secondary to his or her mythologization as the perfect killer. End quote. So my goal in this podcast is to foreground the women or how gender influences the myth. And if sex work is a part of those adaptations, then we need to discuss it. I am taking a portion of our time together to talk about this controversy because it is a fairly recent one in the study of Jack the Ripper, and I know that some people will listen to this podcast and are already aware of the debate. As for what would traditionally be considered academic sources on the biography of the five women, I have used City of Dreadful Delight, Narratives of Sexual Danger in Late Victorian London by Judith R. Wachowitz and Jack the Ripper in the London Press by L. Purry Curtis, Jr. The trouble is, however, that most of the academic texts are concerned with the culture surrounding the murders on a macro level. The focus is on using the victims' murders as a way to explain the historical and social conditions in which they were murdered. Therefore, the focus of these academic texts is less interested in the specific details of the women's lives and more on the women as representative of an entire population of people disenfranchised by their gender and class. This is a useful project. However, the lack of biographical information in academic texts means, as Paul Bleakley argues, quote, dealing with the ripperologist narrative inherently requires researchers to move out of the usual confines of the academy and engage with popular mediums that ripperology works through, internet forums, social media like Twitter or popular true crime magazines, end quote. For an editorial note, the following biographical statements are included in multiple books. So included in popular sources like The Five, The Mammoth Book of Jack the Ripper, and The Complete Jack the Ripper A to Z, and academic sources like Jack the Ripper and the London Press. Polly Nichols was born Mary Ann Walker in London on August 26, 1845, to Caroline and Edward Walker. Her mother died when she was young, and Polly was close to her father, as Reuben Hull reports it. Polly took her husband's last name, Nichols, when they married in 1864, and the couple had children. At one point, the family lived in one of the Peabody houses, a group of buildings funded by a wealthy American. 
to quote, offer accommodations superior to anything otherwise available to the laboring classes, end quote. The couple separated in 1880, perhaps due to infidelity on the husband's part, and Mary Ann left. Her separation from her husband meant that the cultural and financial institutions of marriage did not protect her. For the next several years, Nichols was in and out of workhouses as more respectable jobs didn't work out, and she drank more often. On August 31st, 1888, Nichols's body was found in Bucks Row in Whitechapel, a London East End district. She was disemboweled with lacerations on many parts of her body, including her face and her torso, and her vagina had been stabbed. Dr. Llewellyn, one of the doctors who examined her body, noted that she was considerably cleaner than expected. At the time of her death, according to On the Trail of Jack the Ripper, she, quote, was described as around 5 foot 2 inches in height, with a dark complexion, brown eyes and hair. She was more useful looking than her 43 years, end quote. The complete Jack the Ripper A to Z describes her a little differently. They write that Nichols had, quote, graying hair, delicate features, high cheekbones, and gray eyes, end quote. Polly Nichols, the first canonical victim in the myth of the Whitechapel murders, had 42 years of life that included happiness, joy, grief, and hardship before she was murdered. The second victim in the canonical myth is, depending on which source you read, Annie Eliza Smith or Eliza Ann Smith. She was born in September of 1841 to George Smith and Ruth Chapman. Her father took his own life in 1863. She married John Chapman in 1869 and had several children. She had dark hair and blue eyes. It is often reported that she had a drinking problem, and because of this, she separated from her family. Though Chapman had siblings and her mother could and did help her, she did not stay for an extended period of time with them. On September 8th, eight days after Polly Nichols was murdered, Chapman's body was found in a yard on Hanbury Street. Her throat was also cut and she was disemboweled. She had several missing organs, including her uterus and bladder. She was very ill at the time of her death with lung and brain disease. Annie Chapman was 46 or 47 when she died, and her image lives beyond her mortuary photograph with a portrait of her and her husband for their wedding. Like the other women, most sources focus on the images of her brutalized body as all the reader or consumer needs to know. The third victim, Elizabeth Gustav's daughter, was born to her mother, Beata, and her father, Gustav, on a farm on November 27, 1843, in Torslanda, Sweden. She worked as a domestic servant in the larger city of Gothenburg. In 1865, Gustav's daughter's name was added to a list of suspicious women who were associated in some way with sex work, either confirmed or just considered immorally involved with the man after she became pregnant. Being on this list meant that she would be physically inspected, including an inspection of her genitals to confirm she wasn't carrying sexually transmitted infections. 
Gustav's daughter immigrated to London in 1866 and married John Stride in 1869. Elizabeth left John in 1877 and again after a brief relationship in 1881. She began to tell people that her husband and children died in the Princess Alice disaster. On September 30th, a passerby saw a man and woman having an argument that resulted in him seeing the man physically abusing the woman. It is often thought that this was Elizabeth Stride and her murderer. Whether or not Elizabeth Stride was murdered by Jack the Ripper is a debated fact due to the lack of mutilations to her body. According to the Mammoth Book of Jack the Ripper, Stride was, quote, five feet two inches tall. She had dark brown curly hair and light gray eyes. She had a pale complexion and an oval face. Her upper front teeth were missing, end quote. She was known as Long Liz. The fourth victim killed the same night as Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, or Kate Eddowes, was born on April 14, 1842, in Wolverhampton to George and Catherine Eddowes. Her father was heavily involved in the Tin Man Society, a labor union. Her mother gave birth a total of 12 times. Kate attended Dowgate, a charity school. After working in Birmingham, she began traveling with Thomas Conway, a man who sold cheap ballads, and the pair had children. Kate helped Tom in writing ballads, but she was also in workhouses with her children out of financial necessity. Reuben Hull reports that Tom physically abused her. After separating from her family, she paired with John Kelly. On September 29th, Kate was arrested in the streets for drunk and disorderly conduct and was held in jail to sober up. On the 30th, she was found in Mitre Square within the next couple of hours. Her throat was cut and her facial features were so mutilated that I'm uncomfortable going into it. She was also disemboweled. Kate Eddowes had dark auburn hair and hazel eyes. Mary Jane Kelly's biography is much less substantiated. She was born in 1863 and moved to London sometime around 1884, where she worked as a sex worker in the West End. I have seen multiple sources saying that she was born in Limerick and then moved to Wales with her family. She returned fairly quickly to London after going to Paris for a brief stint. She eventually moved to the East End and paired with Joseph Barnett, where they had a tumultuous relationship. On November 9th, Mary Jane Kelly was heard with a man in her room in Miller's Court. During the late morning hours, someone working for her landlord found her body in her room. Her body and face have been mutilated, and several organs and other pieces of her body, including her heart, were removed. I do not want to get into the details too much, but her body was essentially dissected. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. Very often, the biographies of these women are not included in fictionalizations of their murders. What is typically included is the moment of their deaths. We will discuss this in depth in a moment, but I just want to point out that these women were real people with real lives.
literature is a subgenre of neo-Victorian fiction and media, and many books are devoted to defining this term. The Victorians are everywhere in contemporary media, whether it's the countless film adaptations of Charles Dickens's novels or the numerous Dracula films. The Victorian era, or more broadly the 19th century, was and is an especially ripe site for misreading. In their introduction to neo-Victorian gothic, horror, violence, and degeneration in the reimagined 19th century, neo-Victorian scholars Marie-Louise Kolka and Christian Gudelbin argue, quote, Neo-Victorianism also tries to understand the 19th century as a contemporary self's uncanny doppelganger. Exploring the uncertain limits between what is vanished, dead, and surviving, still living. Celebrating the persistence of the bygone, even while lauding the demise of some of the period's most oppressive aspects, like institutionalized slavery and legally sanctioned sexism and racism, end quote. The Victorian era's racial, economic, gender, and political legacies are felt today, and these policies are the jumping point for many neo-Victorian authors. In many ways, we praise ourselves for removing many blatantly racist, sexist, and classist Victorian policies. Still, this kind of work always houses the more profound question of the difference between us and them. More specifically for this project, how does the continual adaptation and reenactment of the murder of five women in our contemporary moment complicate the separation between the Victorians and us? The Whitechapel murders, coupled with the creation of the detective force, the disbanding of public executions, and many other social movements, amalgamated into what John Cusick and Diane F. Sadoff call eligible sites for fetishizing notions of cultural emergence. The crimes are often described as simultaneously unimaginable, yet indicative of the area. Boundaries were seemingly transgressed, or at least threatened, by the myth of the murderer. For instance, a popular theory of the murderer's identity is that a wealthy man from the West End used the poverty of the East End as a cover for his evil deeds. The newspapers often reported being baffled, yet unsurprised, that the police could not stop these crimes. Neo-Victorian scholar Benjamin Poor writes, quote, the promise held out by fiction set around the Ripper murders is that the solution somehow holds the key to understanding the Victorians themselves, how their society really worked. The missing piece of the jigsaw that connects rich and poor, men and women, professionals and prostitutes, police and criminals, religion, evolution, and atavism, end quote. If contemporary authors can solve the case, then they can solve these seemingly disparate threads. The implication is that they may understand the Victorians better than the Victorians did. This is a podcast, not a book-linked study, so I will only give the bones of the academic conversation around neo-Victorianism. Throughout our episodes, we will inevitably expand on this debate. However, you need to know this context for now to understand my argument about repertoire as a genre. There are two main strands of neo-Victorian scholarship, 
the memorializing, and the metafictional. Something that is metafictional is, according to theorist Linda Hutchin, aware of itself. Similarly, Anne Heilman and Mark Llewellyn argue that for something to count as neo-Victorian fiction proper, and not just historical fiction, it has to be, quote, self-consciously engaged with the act of reinterpretation, rediscovery, and revision concerning the Victorians, end quote. They argue, neo-Victorian fiction differs from historical fiction set in the Victorian period because historical fiction uncritically celebrates the genres and conventions of the time. Neo-Victorian proper means to take the neo, or new, seriously. There has to be some kind of redoing. It can't just be a mass-market novel that uses the Victorian period to entertain. Neo-Victorian fiction, under this theory, requires a knowing reader, one familiar with the patterns of Victorian literature. According to Linda Hutchin, metafiction, which neo-Victorian fiction would be a member of under this view, requires an active readership. Quote, the reader lives in a world which he is forced to acknowledge as fictional. However, paradoxically, the text also demands that he participates, that he engage himself intellectually, imaginatively, and affectively in its co-creation. This two-way pull is the paradox of the reader. The text's own paradox is that it is both narcissistically self-reflexive and yet focused outwards, oriented towards the reader, end quote. For a text to be neo-Victorian, it has to be aware of itself as participating in the genre, which involves critical distance. You must understand the generic conventions the text is participating in. On a very basic level, neo-Victorian proper requires you to understand or acknowledge its references while it is commenting on them. What counts as self-conscious engagement or active reader participation is a site of contention. Do you have to be a Victorian scholar to read neo-Victorian text? Do I need to have to read Dracula and be aware of the scientific debate Bram Stoker participated in to enjoy Jonathan Harker as a character in a contemporary movie? Am I an active reader slash audience of the 2011 Jane Eyre if I just watch it to see Judy Dench in Victorian outfits? Neo-Victorian scholars like Jessica Cox and Kate Mitchell argue that popular books are also self-reflexive, including the books the metafictional strand would not consider Neo-Victorian proper. I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but this side of the Neo-Victorian argument is often weary of texts that do not question the Victorian. So, under this definition, not all literature would count as Neo-Victorian, and I would agree a lot of the text I'm specifically talking about in this podcast wouldn't fit this definition of Neo-Victorian. The other strand of Neo-Victorian scholarship does not necessarily give up the idea of metafiction or self-reflection. Still, it does expand the category of Neo-Victorian to include nostalgia. Kate Mitchell suggests thinking of Neo-Victorian fiction as memory text, which, quote, enables us to critically account for the variety of historical modes they enact, without automatically privileging ironic distance and dismissing nostalgic revival. It posits nostalgia as a more complicated and multiple mode of recollection. Moreover, Understanding the neo-Victorian novel as a present act of recollection foregrounds the role of the reader of producing historical meaning, end quote. 
Rather than dismissing certain texts as repeating Victorian tropes without questioning our relationship to them, neo-Victorian fiction can still be nostalgic and critical because it shows how memory works and is constructed in the present. Instead of lamenting the impossibility of historical knowledge, neo-Victorian texts re-member the Victorian period. Mitchell argues that neo-Victorianism does not attempt to capture all the historical accuracies and the exact feelings of the Victorian period. Instead, it actively shapes and changes what we remember as history. Mitchell's work is particularly poignant when we think about Ripperture, because those pop culture texts are often what people, quote, remember as historical fact. And it's my goal to draw attention to this process in this podcast. Regardless of the theoretical debates around the definition of neo-Victorian, there seems to be a common thread that the neo-Victorian genre is, quote, more about the moment of their writing than the setting of their writing, end quote, according to Heilman and Llewellyn. The genre uses the tropes of Victorian literature and characters to interrogate the period and gauge with their own critically. Whether or not that engagement questions how progressive our current moment is compared to the stuffy Victorians, or laments the loss of Victorian excellence depends on the text. Broadly defined, Neo-Victorianism is the adaptation of the Victorian period across media forms, although the dates of what counts as the Victorian period are flexible. A Neo-Victorian text, whether a book, film, or something else, can simply use the time period, but it can also adapt fictional characters from the Victorian period. It can also adapt historical figures, such as Queen Victoria, a character in the very good steampunk detective podcast, Victoriosity. Very often, though, neo-Victorian adaptations are a mashup of history, biography, and myth. It is at this conjunction where Repertory intervenes. Throughout this podcast, I follow scholars like Jessica Cox, who argues the genre of neo-Victorian itself is self-aware and self-critical. Jessica Cox argues, quote, who polices the Victorian past? For traditional neo-Victorian critics, the answer appears to be those creators of literary neo-Victorian fiction, self-consciously engaged with Victorian literature, history, and culture. Popular historical detective fiction, though, suggests otherwise. The figure of the fictional detective embroils the authors and readers of popular historical fiction and the process of surveillance, and invites readers of popular fiction to police the past, quote. Popular neo-Victorian genres like detective and gothic fiction encourage the readers to monitor the text, regardless of their previous knowledge. They are detectives who rifle through clues and references to create meaning, like in Ripperture. Popular culture's obsession with Victorians and with Ripperture more specifically is a transmedia phenomenon. The Victorian period has been adapted into novels, films, television, video games, and even podcasts. For example, one can play as a young Sherlock Holmes in the video game Sherlock Holmes Chapter 1, listen to an erotic podfic of Holmes and Watson on a popular fanfiction website, or watch Robert Downey Jr. play the detective in the popular film franchise. Adaptations across forms build on each other. According to Henry Jenkins, quote, a transmedia story unfolds across media platforms, with each new text making a distinctive and valuable contribution to the whole. Each medium does what it does best. 
so that a story may be introduced in a film, expanded through television, novels, and comics, its world might be explored through gameplay or experienced as an amusement park attraction. End quote. The Jack the Ripper story is transmedial. There are films, novels, tabletop games, video games, reenactments, museum, and more. Each adaptation contributes to the whole myth. For the next section, let's think about and define how gender works in neo-Victorian studies. Then focus on how it works in repertoire media. Gender analysis is a particular aim of neo-Victorian fiction. Hallman and Llewellyn argue, quote, If the political revisioning impulse of contemporary neo-Victorian fiction has a key theme aside from recent empire, it is the interrogation of gender and sexuality, end quote. Of course, these discourses are not easily categorized or separated, and the most productive engagement with them is intersectional. For the gender scholar Jeanette King, neo-Victorian employment of Victorian constructs of gender is seen as a way, quote, to speak about issues which were unspeakable for women of the past, notably areas surrounding sexuality and the body, end quote. While this question of issues being unspeakable for women should be questioned as recent scholarship has explored exactly how women spoke in the Victorian period, it is a useful construct from which neo-Victorian writers jump. The neo-Victorian fills in the gaps left by canonical Victorian texts. In our next episode, episode 2, we foreground more specific theories of Victorian gender. One of the inherent themes in Ripture is sex work and paid sexual labor because the Ripper victims have been depicted as sex workers. Historian Rosalind Crone writes that sex work was often done out of necessity. Quote, Petty crime and prostitution were used by many as another means of survival, a way in which to supplement meager incomes and to cope with periods of unemployment, a fate within the realm of possibility for the majority, not just the casual poor, end quote. I'm not implying that all sex workers did sex work just because they needed the money. Instead, I am pointing to the various reasons behind sex work, including just doing it because they want to. Sex work, as gender scholar Nina Atwood argues, was an undefined term amongst social workers, the medical community, and lawmakers. Sex workers, in general, were a threat to both appropriate femininity and masculinity. Judith Walkowitz points to this. Quote, the public symbol of female vice, the prostitute, established a stark contrast to domesticated feminine virtue as well as to male bourgeois identity. She was the embodiment of the corporeal smells and animal passions that the rational bourgeois male had repudiated and that the virtual woman, the spiritualized angel in the house, had suppressed, end quote. Sex workers were public in a way that women were not supposed to be. Four of the five Ripper victims were murdered in fairly public locations. They weren't supposed to be there whether they were working or they were sleeping. Violating appropriate femininity is a theme that we will continually return to in this podcast. Addressing the ethics of consuming and talking about ripperture as a genre is essential.
and that is inevitably a debate around gender. Many of the critiques around true crime, that it seeks entertainment pleasure from someone else's trauma, or reinforces existing ideological institutions, can be applied to fictionalizations of historical crime. If my claim is that Jack the Ripper is a myth created by continual adaptation, and as anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss explains, quote, there is no one true version of which all the others are but copies or distortions, end quote. What does that mean for the memories of Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly? Their brutal deaths have continually been adapted to make an argument about their killer. Ripperture, whether explicitly explicitly says this or not, is based on a true story, even if only very loosely at times. If you use the name Jack the Ripper or reference the story through the plot or illusions, the audience will be reminded of all they think they know of that story. As Thomas Leach, an adaptation critic, argues, quote, based on a true story, indicates a source text that both is and is not a text, one that carries some markers common to most source texts but not others. Most source texts have authors and publishers who have sold the adaptation rights in return for a given amount of money and a screen credit. But a true story is authorless, publisherless, agentless, end quote. Yes, there is a historical record one can return to for the Whitechapel murders, but even that is highly contested as we see in the debate around Hallie Rubin's old book, The Five, and the question of whether or not the women were all sex workers. The myth that adaptations of Jack the Ripper have created does not have one creator, it has many. And if many of the texts creating the myth are obviously exploitative of the victims, what does that mean for this podcast? Especially because the biographies of the victims are not that clear. So they can be whoever the adapter wants to be. And most of the time, the adapter wants them to just be dead bodies. To prove my point about the focus of the victims as being purely body, if you Google Jack the Ripper, you can see all five women's dead bodies, or their faces, their dead faces. In fact, most of the sources I used for their biography include those pictures. Most of the images are of the women lying on an examination table. There are very few pictures of the women as they lived. We'll continue to discuss this throughout the rest of the episodes. However, the circulation of those pictures and the frequency at which books about Jack the Ripper foreground those pictures speaks to a re-victimization of the female body. In Murder in Black and White, Victorian Crime Scenes and the Ripper Photographs, Mega Anwar argues, quote, The victim photographs are evidence of the salutary functions of medicine, its ability to piece and suture back beleaguered body parts and recover a semblance of the human contours of a woman disfigured and mutilated beyond recognition. The doctors may not have had the knowledge to inflict injuries as masterfully as the Ripper, yet they had the expertise and know-how to reverse the damage, to repair the bodies left in his wake. The photographs, therefore, transform these women into canvases upon which men with competing motivations prove their aesthetic and scientific mastery, end quote. 
Anwar argues that those pictures represented the ways the victims' bodies were re-traumatized after their murder by the medical institution. Indeed, the question of re-traumatization of Ripperture has been on my mind since I began this podcast, and it is something I have in my mind as I go through this whole process. But people are already talking about Jack the Ripper. In that case, I want to point to how objectification and victimization, or the instances of subversive potential, happen during the adaptation process. And there's no better way to do that detective work than to take a closer look at some of the most notable adaptations of the story of the White Chapel murders. Our first season of Ripperture Building the Myth will be split into sections. For the next four episodes, we will discuss a group of texts exploring examples of Ripperture that feature a female Jack the Ripper, or also called a Jill the Ripper. Our introductory episode will examine a Victorian text with a Jill the Ripper figure called The Whitechapel Murders or an American Detective in London from 1889. In episode 3, we examine a film from 2000 called Jill Rips and talk about the ways an exploitation film treats the Ripper narrative. Then, in episode 4, we will look at another film from 1971 titled Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde a mashup of Jack the Ripper and Robert Louis Stevenson's famous Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Episode 5 will close out the Jill the Ripper series with a discussion of the novel The Michaelmas Girls, published in 1975. And the next group of episodes, or the second chapter of the podcast, if you will, we will talk about detectives in Ripperture. Our first episode in the second chapter will introduce detective fiction using a Victorian example published in 1888, the same year of the actual crimes, titled The Whitechapel Murders Are On the Track of the Fiend. Episode 7 will cover the film from 1965, A Study in Terror. It's another example of the expansiveness of the Ripper myth as it combines Sherlock Holmes, the most famous detective in the Western world. Episode 8 We'll cover Stalking Jack the Ripper, a novel published in 2016, starring a young female coroner. Episode 9, our final episode in the detective fiction chapter, will be on the 2001 film From Hell. I will repeat this at the beginning of each episode, but I want to say it again here. This podcast will discuss violence. Specifically, violence against women. Listener discretion is advised. so much for listening if you like what you heard please rate review and subscribe be sure to check out my website graciebain.com and follow me on twitter at gracie underscore bain shout out to olivia nicole and michelle for letting me quiz them on their knowledge of jack the ripper many thanks to the university of arkansas english department for supporting my podcast dissertation thank you especially to my dissertation director lizette switke and the rest of my committee Much appreciation to the University of Arkansas Gender Studies Program and the resources I received for this podcast dissertation with support from the Bridge Fellowship. I'll be back later with more conversations about the fictionalization of the Whitechapel crimes and the gender politics accompanying it.